You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Isita Yansene. Isita is a brand and design strategy consultant and the founder and principal of Acts of Light LLC, a strategic consulting practice founded on a mission to help brands and cultural institutions create meaningful relationships with their audiences. Isita's parents emigrated to the United States from Sierra Leone. She was born in Portland, Oregon, And after her parents decided to go their separate ways, her father took the reins of raising her in an insular, supportive Portland community. Isita's mother remained a provider, but she was not always a present figure in her life. By the time she made her way to Spelman College, Isita was not only building her acumen in economics, her chosen area of study, but she was also educated on racial issues in a way that she had not been back home. After graduation, she set her sights on marketing and advertising and racked up some impressive credentials, including working at Time Inc., obtaining a master's degree in strategic design management from Parsons School of Design, and serving as a director of strategy and accounts for Condé Nast. But she always had an entrepreneurial spirit. So after some time, she struck out on her own. But Isita experienced what many entrepreneurs go through. The business wasn't as lucrative as she thought it would be. But after an attempt to go back in-house that didn't work out, Isita realized that she was operating from a scarcity mindset. So she did the internal and external work to set her business up for success. And while it was not easy, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, she discovered what we here at the December 26th podcast know to be true. There is money out there that is waiting to be made. So without further ado, here's her story. Isita, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, Delisha. Thank you so much for being here. This has been a long time coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we were talking before we pressed record about how, you know, we're often connected with people. It's not the right time. And then we also have scheduling conflicts that happen. So uh, we're so happy to finally have you on the show. Yeah, I'm happy to be here, too. It has been a long time coming. But to your point, I do think that, um, yeah, it's, it's a perfect time for me to um talk a little bit more openly about my journey. And I love what you all have been doing over the past few years. Um, It's been inspiring to see the commitment um, to telling our stories and and giving us a platform to, you know, dive a little bit deeper into the things that are um, not so pretty um, about um, um, our career journeys, um, but then keep each other lifted at the same time. So um, I'm, I'm, yeah, it's it's inspiring to see you all work. I appreciate that. And let me tell you, today is a day where I needed to hear that. And I'm sure, you know, you know, you're someone who juggles many things. You have those days where you get up and you're like, if I could just get a day. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Just get a day. Right. Exactly. So but here we are. And I must say this this inner glow that you have uh, that also is displayed as an outer glow is magnificent. If folks, you know, we'll hear the audio first but hopefully they will click on the video uh, one day and just really appreciate what I what I know is coming from the inside, uh, mm-hmm. but it's clearly manifested in this beauty on the outside as well. 
I fully receive that. Um, thank you very, very much. There's a lot of inner work happening around these parts. To I understand. <laughs> I understand. So let's get right into it. Who is Isita Yansene? Ah, uh, Isita Yansene is a Black woman, um, a child of immigrants, a child of African immigrants from Sierra Leone, first generation American, um, first to be born, first in my family to be born in America. Um, I'm a Spelman alumna. Um, I'm a New Yorker, a Brooklynite. Um, I'm a marketer. I'm a strategist. I'm a consultant. I am a problem solver, a friend, a sister. Um, yeah, that's how I describe myself. So there are, those are many hats that you've described. And, you know, we have had so many people on the show who are children of immigrants. You know, Demarcus and I are, are children of, of an immigrant on one side of our, our, our parental unit. Um, and we know that there are certain ties that, that bind us in those stories, but also people have unique experiences as well within that narrative. So talk to me a, a bit about your family and what brought them to the U.S., of course. And then what was your upbringing like when you were, when you were younger? Yeah, it's an interesting story. So my mother and father are both from Sierra Leone, West Africa. They came to the U.S. Um, in the mid 80s, um, in 85. And my dad at the time was speaking out against the government in Sierra Leone. Um, and for a period of time was protected as a student. Um, but then when he was no longer in university, um, some of the, um, the, you know, the, the platforms and the, the messaging that, um, that, that was coming from him was putting him in a dangerous situation. And so he decided to leave the country. So, um, he and my mom actually landed eventually in Portland, Oregon, which is where I was born and raised. Um, and they separated while I was young and I ended up being raised by my dad. So I am a daddy's girl through and through um, and um, was raised by a phenomenal, phenomenal man um, who was very, very, um, very present um, in my day-to-day in my academics. He was a PTA dad. He was, um, he was always at, you know, any of my performances. I was also a figure skater growing up. Um, and he made it a point to get me involved in sport, knowing the structure that it would provide me. Um, and then also was, you know, like all immigrant parents, um, placed a high emphasis on education um, and made sure that my studies were came first and foremost. Um, and so I, um, you know, have a commitment to this day to academics. Um, I was, you know, in middle school or elementary, middle school, high school, um, both very focused on my academics while also focused on extracurriculars. Um, I also was fortunate enough to grow up in a um, in an immigrant community that just so happened to be in Portland, Oregon, which, as many people know, is one of the whitest cities in America. Um, and so, I was really fortunate to culti- to be able to cultivate a sense of identity that was rooted in um, African heritage, while also, you know, um, having some access to. Um, to the outside world in, in, a, in a very unique way. Um, Portland is a very 
specific um, place to grow up. Um, you know, while it is very, um, very white, it's progressive in a particular way. Um, and it, it, I look back and I'm really grateful to have had that experience growing up there, having the experience that I, that I had while growing up there. Um, I, college was never an option. Um, but I did, my dad did think and was hoping that I would stay in, um, in Portland, um, or near in Oregon. Um, but Spellman really called me. Um, I, you know, I, I think that I was always very interested in, um, well, let me back up a little bit. So one of the windows into the world that I had as a little girl growing up as, you know, with a single dad, um, was magazines. And so I'd spend a lot of time, you know, diving into the pages of, of Vogue and Teen Vogue and Cosmopolitan and stuff I probably shouldn't have been reading at that age. Um, and so I would get really, really, um, excited about what was on the other side of the country looking at like, you know, the, um, you know, what was happening on the scene in in New York city and, um, looking at the advertisements and, and, um, not seeing representation, not seeing myself and thinking that, wow, this, this is an industry that could be really interesting to plug into. And, um, and so when the opportunity for school, for college, um, came around and I started thinking about what it is that I wanted to do. I knew that marketing was something that could be of interest to me. Um, so fast forward, well, um, fast forward to, let's say about 16 years old. Um, I was a part of a, an organization called, um, self-enhancement incorporated, which is still, um, ongoing, I believe in Oregon. And, um, they took us on a, um, a college tour um, to Boston. And while in Boston, um, I thought maybe I'd be interested in Harvard. I thought I'd maybe be interested in, um, Boston university, but ended up visiting Wellesley and fell in love. Um, and that got me on the track to think about women's colleges. And my college counselor at the time was like, Hey, well, if you're interested in women's colleges, you should consider Spelman. And mind you, I went to a very like large, like, um, 1500 person high school that was diverse for Portland. And so I thought that I wanted to replicate that experience in college. Um, so to, to, you know, suggest that I go to an all women's all black college, um, was a bit of a stretch for me. Um, but they were on the common app and, um, my college counselor, she was like, well, I'm going to submit your your, um, your application. And she did. And so once I got in, I did a deeper dive into the history of the school, um, and realized that it would be a really good fit for me. Um, and so that's what took me, um, out of Portland and to Atlanta. So a lot to unpack there, many, many things, uh, within your, your story of growing up. And I, I want to take it all the way back to being raised by a single dad. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but having your parents split re when you were young. So do you have a recollection of your parents being together? 
I have, yeah, I have a bit of a recollection recollection of my parents being together. Mm-hmm. So they split up early. Yeah, when I was yeah. five. When you were five, right? So mm-hmm. we hear so many stories of people raised in single parent households, mm-hmm. but I can probably count on one hand just on this show, the guests who've come on, particularly women mm-hmm. and have been raised by their dad. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so growing up with this loving, really supportive father, but also having some things that are very unique to us as girls and women experiencing that. Did you have a longing to have your mom present? I did. I did. Um, And in fact, you know, these are the things that I unpack with my therapist, but there was a period of time where I was very, like, I can, I can identify it now as anger. Mm. Um, You know, I, yeah, five. I was five years old. She left with not a lot of explanation, right? She didn't explain. My father also didn't explain. We just kind of like moved on. Um, and so I didn't have, you know, the tools to really understand what was going on, but I knew that something was different. Um, and so there was definitely a longing for her. Now she was um she was present in the sense that we would talk on the phone every now and then mm. um and you know my mom is a provider so she left you know and I I understand this now as an adult she left um for reasons you know her and my dad didn't work out but then also she um had more family and from some really close friends on the east coast she moved to to virginia um, and an opportunity to go to school. Um, and she saw that as an opportunity to provide a better life for me. So my mom would send money back every, um, you know, right before, um, uh, school every year, she would send me like a box of clothes. Like she was, she's the type of mother who places an emphasis on providing. And that is very you know, it's, it's counter to what I think a lot of, um, folks are used to They're They, it, a lot of times the role is flipped where mm-hmm. the man is the one who feels as though he's got to provide And My dad was that too, but my dad was my emotional support. My dad was, um, unafraid to, um, uh, to, to provide that, that, um, like be that vulnerable, um, adult, um, that would help me to navigate some hard emotional, you know, um, situations. And my mom was just different. She was, she was different. I also, you know, my, my fam, my mother is from, um, my mother and my mother's, um, uh, family lineage, um, were from the Fulani tribe, which mm-hmm. is a nomadic tribe, um, throughout throughout Africa. And so, you know, there's another part of me now that's been, you know, as I start to just piece things together, like my mom was a mover. She moved. She's from a line of people who, um, who shift and who move and who go to places where, um, where home is, where, you know, and they, and they understand that, that home is not necessarily in one place. Um, and so it doesn't, surprised me in some ways that when a situation was, was deeply uncomfortable, she decided that she had to go. Um, 
but it was hard for me. And to this day, I continue to unpack a lot of it. Um, but I know that it all happened for um, for a reason. Kudos to your dad, you know, for having that high EQ. And oftentimes when you see these stories in movies or television and film of this single dad, you have this rough and tumble tomboy daughter, right? Who doesn't, is not <laughs> her feminine side at all, you know, because her dad is just inept in, in raising a daughter. And that's not, a, that's not everybody's story. That's really a trope. So for your dad to be able to exhibit that vulnerability and support you emotionally, in addition to providing this great life for you, is just so commendable. Yeah, he's yeah, he's he he's got his faults, but, you know, I I really lucked up in that department Um, and he's everybody's favorite uncle. Like he, you know, taught everybody how to drive. All my cousins had to drive. Um he, you know, was the one who would take you to the library if you had a question. You got one question, we don't know the answer because we don't have the the books in the house, then we'll take a trip to the library. So he was just present. Um, and and I'm extraordinarily grateful for for how that's translated into a sense of inner strength for me um, as an adult. And thinking more about this community that you had, this insular immigrant community, which I would hope provided some nurturing support and women to model yourself after it and, and interface with as well. Uh, but I find the the Portland piece very intriguing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not a place you hear about often uh, when people talk about, you know, emigrating to the U S and when you think about these cities that are predominantly white, a lot of our stories are rooted in discomfort uh, and and not feeling a sense of belonging. So to hear this this place was very progressive and you felt like you had a great experience, what do you think made you feel so accepted and like this is someplace that you can grow and thrive once you walked outside of that insular community into the larger world? Um, it's a really good question. I think that my dad provided a lot of buffers for me. Um I think my dad provided a lot of buffers for me, my family, to your point, my aunts, my cousins, like I was the baby, you know? And so everybody was just, they were very, very protective of me. Um, So there were, you know, I don't want to paint Portland as somewhere that is like uh, idyllic and, um, open armed, but I do think that my experience, um, and the way in which I was protected by my family kind of shielded me from some, like potentially like, like some realities. Also, I will say this, and I, I, I've had this conversation with some of my, um, friends who are also child children of immigrants. Um, they're, I think that there was an idea, there was a um, idealization of, um, let me back up. I think that in some ways, my family also didn't really understand the realities of racism. And there were things that were happening that were not very clear to Mm -hmm. them. Um, which then in a kind of like gaslighty way protected me. Mm. So I know that because I go back now as an adult after going to Spelman and being like (laughs) stripped away of any, you know, um, false realities um, and then living through 
all that we lived through and are continuing to living through live live through post 2020 i go back to portland now and i even read like there was an article that was written about me in in high school um and a a a uh, math teacher of mine um provided a quote and she singled me out as being a model student and someone who didn't succumb to peer pressure and was different. And she didn't see that as tokenism, right? Mm -hmm. I now could see that as tokenism. When I was younger, my father didn't see that as tokenism and neither did I, but now I do because I understand that she, what she was doing, you know, uh, subconsciously, consciously, I think it was subconscious. I do think that she had a good heart, but like it was coded, mm-hmm. you know, it was very coded. It was, um, she, 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 she needed to, she, she was placing so much, um, um, care and support around me because I fit a particular model, um, and so it was easy for her to support me. Um, but that was extraordinarily unfair because there were so many ways in which I was like my, you know, I was like everybody else. Um, so I I say all that to say that there are some ways in which my experience was a little bit distorted um, because my parents did not grow up here in America. Um And therefore, there were some conversations that we didn't have in the household around the realities of Blackness in America and racism in America. Um, And so, like I said, when I went to Spelman, I was like, wait, what? I got the same education about Blackness in America that Becky did. Mm. And here I am walking around in this Black body thinking that, like, I'm, you know, everything is okay. It's not. (laughs) so that was eye-opening. And so I, um, <laughs> I've been saying this, like, I really empathize with the people, you know, when, when, when George Floyd was murdered and the racial reckoning happened in June of 2020 and everybody was rushing online to get access to resources because they needed to understand what the heck happened in America. I was like, ooh. I empathize with y'all because that would have been me had I gone to a PWI after living in Portland, Oregon, having been raised in an immigrant family that didn't talk about Black racism in America. That would have been me. But thankfully, I had this experience at Spelman where for that first year, we took a class called um, African Diaspora in the World, which is a, a history class from an African diasporic perspective. And it just completely like resets your understanding of where you are. And then had another, you know, three years to learn. I studied economics, learn econ, take all of these other liberal arts um, courses, engage with Black folks from across the nation and some from, you know, from around the world. Um in a in an environment that was nurturing and was designed to educate me, what a privilege! So I, I empathize with with folks who are just now starting to really understand what is real. 
And there is some discord within the Black community of those who were born and raised here versus those who emigrated here or grew up in an immigrant community. And I feel like it, it can, that discord is the result of two camps. One where there is an actual arrogance amongst our brothers and sisters of the African diaspora who were not raised, you know, who were not raised here or who were born into that community who feel like you just need to work harder. Right. You're you're entitled. You're complaining. You just need to put your head down and work. There's that. And there's the also the other side of it that comes across as uh, a harmless naivete. Yeah. Right. Where it's just we didn't know. Um, For me, I struggle with the latter because I'm thinking to myself, how can you be here? Right. And Mm -hmm. we're in the age of information. There's access to media more more so now than back then, of course, where every time something happens, it dominates social media, it dominates our discourse online. So do you think there is an element of, of folks being willfully obtuse about the structural inequality uh, and, and some of the challenges that we face here? Or do you really believe it is just a genuine lack of knowledge about what's happening? I think that it is... I, I think that when you leave and you, in, in some, I'll, I'll just speak for my family. Um, there was a lot of trauma mm-hmm. <laughs> that they were escaping from. And when you were, when you are escaping from war, when you're escaping from, um, from a government that is, um, corrupt, um, when you may not have a home to go back to, um, you, I, I don't know if it's willfulness or if it's just, look, we'd have to push forward. We don't have anywhere to go back to. So gather the information, but like, you got to survive. Mm-hmm. Do what you have to do to survive. Um, you know, my, when, after my family came to the United States, they sent for my oldest sister to come. And then when it was time to send for my second sister to come, they couldn't get her out of Sierra Leone because of the war. And so not only was there separation between her and the rest of the family, but there was also destruction of my family's home, the compound. Like there's... No, the the things that they would want to go back to, they can't go back to. And so the focus becomes, well, what can we make of where we're at right now? What can we do? How can we be innovative? How can we change? Like, how, you know, in that it, it's, it's the, the spirit that you, the spirit and the posture that you have to stay in and to, to remain, to remain alive. Um, and so I hope that that answers your question. I, I don't think, yeah. That, yeah, I don't, I don't think that it's, um, like lack of wanting to understand, but more so just like an, or, or a willful like blindness. Um, but more so like, it's so painful. Some of it's just so painful to really, really engage with. And, you know, that I think is the tie that binds all of us, whether we were raised here, whether we you know have emigrated here, whether we're in an immigrant community, it's finding those coping mechanisms that work for us. You know, we, we always joke 
that in the midst of trauma, Black folks will find levity. Like we're going to find something right. to laugh about, right? And so, and for others, it may be that I'm just focused on my survival and whatever additional trauma I need to black block out to survive and to advance. That's what I'm going to do. Right. Um, so I think that was very, very well put. And you know, I hadn't heard it described that way before. It's always described as sort of an us versus them, mm-hmm. and we don't understand each other. But we're all just trying to survive at the end of the day. Yeah, we're all just trying to survive. And we, you know, there's what I find to be really interesting about the time that we're living in right now is that, um, you know, war has never really hit American soil. Mass trauma, um, collective trauma um, that touches whites, blacks, Latinos, Asians hasn't really hit America until the pandemic. And so even coming out of this, sometimes I talk to my family and (laughs) their, their perception and their kind of like attitude is like, we just move on. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, things happen, um, that are not pretty and that are destructive at the core. Um, and I talked to some of my American friends, black and white, all from all over the spectrum. And it is like, whew, what, like, how are we going to move forward? Like we were seeing a mental health crisis and I fully understand it. We're, we're just, we're America's a, a baby um, in relationship to the rest of the world. And the crises that we just went through and the way that we're coming out of it. Um, and the, 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 yeah, some of the patterns of, of, um, of thought, um, and the, uh, like resilience I'm seeing is in some ways it's not as strong as some of our folks who have, have come from a long line of, of, um, or have been in, in wars or have been in, um, uh, lived in, in war-torn uh, uh, regions or are just in a part of the world where those things are just very close or even have more access to global information as opposed to being kind of stifled by the way in which we talk about the news or we you know engage in the news here in America. It's just, I don't know, I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but I just think that um, our perspectives are, are shifting now. Absolutely. And before we jump to more of your academic and professional journey, I do want to touch on this radical awakening that you had at Spelman and then coming back home, Mm -hmm. because I think a lot of us have that experience of growing up in a very structured environment that may be conservative in some ways, or just have, have very strong ideals. And then we go to school and we get educated. And that education, I think sometimes that awakening can manifest in a couple of different ways. Mm-hmm. Race and, and related issues, religion and spirituality, mm-hmm. sexuality. There are many things that can happen when you go to school and sort of open your mind and your, your worldview is a bit different. So what was it like for you having that experience your freshman year and then coming back to mm-hmm. the same community, especially like your dynamic with the elders, with your, your father and the other older folks in your family? Yeah, it's a good question um, because technically I didn't go back. I didn't mm. go back to Portland. Um, I moved to Florida for a short stint after college um, for a job, and then I moved to New York. 
and, um, and have spent the last 12, 13 years on the East Coast. Um, and that gave me an opportunity actually to start spending more time and developing a deeper relationship with my mom. But what I will say is like, so I'll, so you kind of asked two things. So one, how was the experience of, of going to Spelman and how did that kind of open me up like mentally, spiritually? Is that well, more, more so about that after that first year, right? So, so having this epiphany in a lot of ways, right? Oh, I- and then you have that first summer. Where, you know, if you went home that first summer, oftentimes I think parents and family can feel like when you first come back, it's like, who is this person? What happened at school? And that can be a difficult transition for for both parties. So I was speaking specifically going back to the point you made about feeling like you you had sort of the same racial education as a white girl. Mm -hmm. Now bringing what you've learned Mm -hmm. back that first summer. Yeah, it's a good question. I'm trying to remember. You might have just blocked it out. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I don't know that I, what, that first summer I went to, I went, I think I, I did an intern. I did go back home to Portland for Christmas break. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think what I was navigating around that time, like I was, talk about like, being willfully blind and just like in my own world, I was just so excited about all that I had just been exposed to. Like I'd never met a rich black person before. You definitely did at Spelman though. I did at Spelman. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'd, I'd never met black boys that wanted to be scientists and also skateboarded. Like I never, I just, I was so, my mind was just like completely wide open. And I think that what was born in me at that time or like started to be more deeply cultivated was this like social scientist in me. I was like, I want to get to know everybody. I want to learn like, where did you come from? And what was your background like? And like, you know, at, and this is across Spelman and Morehouse, what I learned or what I felt, and I know many other Spelman women will say this, is you get to Spelman and you realize that like, okay, so I'm not the only one who was president of, <laughs> you know. Not <laughs> a unicorn. I'm not the only one who was, you know, cheerleading captain. I'm not the only one who was, you know, one model UN. I'm not the, I'm in, now I'm in this like sea of Black women who were the one. How do I find my place in this environment? And so I would say that like when I came back to Portland, I just remember being really excited to share with my dad what was happening, like what happened um, and and get him involved in what I was experiencing. Because I will say in hindsight, you know, that was a point in time where my relationship with my dad started to shift because, um, and I think a lot of, of kids go through this, like he hasn't said this to me, so I'm projecting a little bit, but, um, I think that he started to wonder like what he could, what value he could add at that time. And so I was trying to like show him and like, you know, bring him up to speed and get him excited about the ways in which my world was opening up. 
so yeah, all I remember honestly was just was pure excitement um, about what I was being exposed to and what I was going to start having access to. Yeah, I mean that experience of coming into an academic environment where you are no longer the unicorn. And it's an interesting sort of like psychological trip because oftentimes we can feel like I'm tired of being the only one. Like I'm tired of being just this thing that people hold up on a pedestal and and what have you. But then you get in these environments where you are one of thousands. Right. And and everybody uh, has the skills, has the talent, has the drive and ambition. It, It can feel like okay, I don't want this to be a competitive thing because it's not supposed to, but how do I now adapt to being just one of many and not, you know, not the one that people look at and say, oh no, she's the one. We're all, now we're all the one. It isn't, it's a heady experience for sure. It is. is. And if you are somebody who believes in like self-actualization, like it can be really, really stimulating because you're like, whoa, okay. One, believing in self-actualization, also believing that God doesn't make mistakes. So it's like, I'm now in this environment. How do I, how do I engage? Like, how do I sharpen my sister to the left? Like, how do I let her sharpen me so that we can make the most of this time that we have together to be the best versions of ourselves? Mm-hmm. Um, and I I think that, you know, from a like a code of ethics and a um, a tradition standpoint, um, Spellman does a, a really good job of ensuring that you look to your left and you look to your right, and then you move together um, toward progress. Um, and so I, I never saw any of my sisters as, as competition. It was like, no, 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 we all are going to, pull each other up. Um, and we're going to engage with those brothers across the street too, because we need them as well. Um, and, um, yeah. And, and, and we're, and, and hopefully like, you know, cause the beautiful thing about the, the, um, personalities that we cultivated in high school, like there's a lot of confidence in those young versions of ourselves. Like we need to keep bringing that forward. Um, and not forget that, um, but just level up. Absolutely. So Mm -hmm. jumping ahead a bit, you mentioned majoring in economics. Mm -hmm. What was your vision for your career as your academic, uh, the academic experience at Spelman was winding down? So I, um, I, I knew that I wanted to go into the business world. I knew that I wanted to be a businesswoman. Um, there was no business major at Spelman. Economics was the closest. And I'm actually very, very glad that I, I um, studied econ as opposed to like business administration. Um, so I knew I wanted to study business. And then I also knew that um, I wanted to be in the business of creativity. Um, and so marketing became a, an avenue for, um, for that passion to come through. And um you know, I like others. You know, interned on um, in banking. That was that was a. a um, I was trying to figure out what I wanted. Like I, I in pressure test what I thought I wanted. Um, and in econ, when you're studying econ, around that time, everybody was like, "Well, you got to go into finance. You got to go into finance." So I, I interned at State Street in Boston my sophomore year. 
realized that I didn't like that and that I was sure that I wanted to go the creative route. And then my junior year of um, my, my junior year summer, I interned at Giant Magazine, which is a um, and now um, closed shop. But I was a an intern in the, um, the marketing and advertising department um, and fell in love and knew that um, knew that that was the direction that I wanted to go in. Um, now I didn't get a job, um, at any of the magazine publishing houses right after school. Um, I actually started working for a, a company called Damon Worldwide and they developed, um, private label programs in the grocery industry. So that was interesting because it got me into like brand development, um, and marketing and taught me kind of a 360 approach to developing brands. Um, and then I started looking again and found a, a role at um, a subsidiary company of Time Inc. called Synapse. Um, and that's what brought me to, to New York. Um, and that's what got me into the publishing industry. They were a, um, a company that sold magazine subscriptions through their customer touch points. So you go to, you know, at retail, you go to Lane Bryant and you, you know, get a gift with purchase. Um, Synapse would fulfill those subscriptions. Um, and so I, I did um, retail and telemarketing for magazine subscription sales um, before then going to Time Inc. proper um, and working on special edition publications for Essence, um, time, life, um, people and people style watch. Um, and so, yeah, that brought me squarely into the space that I had dreamed about being at, um, as a, as a little girl. So I got really lucky there. So were you in publishing as this world was starting to change in the sense that people are realizing, oh, the, the money that used to be here is not happening uh, and that it's continuing to be on decline. Jobs that that once existed within the, the publishing and media world don't exist anymore. Print media, I should say. Were you there as that transition was happening? Um, and I'll say not just happening because it probably preceded you, the start of it, but like starting to reach a fever pitch where it's like, okay, how many of these magazines are actually going to survive? And so what was that like for you if you were there in it in terms of thinking about the next steps within your professional career? Yeah, great question. So yes, much of much of that shift in the industry was definitely happening prior to me, um, prior prior to me joining and 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 getting a, a job. Um, and then it began to accelerate. Um, I was never, I was never um, like I didn't work for the, how do, how do I explain it? Um, I wasn't on like the editorial side. I wasn't at the magazines. I was, I was on the book publishing side. So what we would do is we would repurpose content from the magazines into these like single subject special editions that mm-hmm. would be on the newsstand. And so what was actually interesting about that side of the business is it was profitable. Um, and so we were in Time Inc. owned, um, a significant portion of um, the distribution channels, the pockets that were at retail. So um, we were doing really great, actually. Um, 
And so I didn't feel a lot of the anxieties around that a lot of my like counterparts at the, on the magazine side um, were feeling. Um, that being said, I, I knew that, and I was like a, a, you know, a brand marketing manager around that time. And I knew that because of my, you know, background as a, um, you know, a a kid who was always told that she should get her PhD by the age of 30. It was like, okay, I'm going to have to go back to school at some point. Um, how do I want to level up? Um, I'm, uh, I knew while I may not have had language for it, like I knew that I was a strat, like I, I, I knew that I was a strategist. Like I knew that I was a big picture thinker. I knew that I had the ability to, you know, aside from putting a brand marketing campaign together and being able to like, you know, um, kind of the tangible things of what it means to create a, a special publication of getting the cover right. Um, uh, I, I knew that I had some really sharp skills and understanding, um, around the business side, um, the financials, Um, and then also what it would take to create a beautiful product. And so I wanted to either go to business. I wanted to, I thought business school was the route, um, but it wasn't creative enough. And so that was when I discovered, um, design. Mm -hmm. I started looking into, um, programs, um, in design school and uncovered a program called strategic design and management at uh, Parsons. And it was essentially like a business degree within a design school. It's like a hybrid between a design, um, a a design degree and a business degree. Um, And it was around the time that like human centered design, design thinking was starting to become a part of um, people's lexicon. And um, there was a push to have designers, people who could understand structural problems um, at the table. Um, And so I was like, oh, this is really fascinating. I think there was so much of what I was reading um, like on Parsons's website that really resonated with me. And so I applied, got in, um, and fast forward, um, once I graduated from the program, I realized, well, I realized that my skill set was going to be valuable in, again, in the publishing space um, as they were thinking about innovation. Where is this going? Where is this going next? These lost revenue streams, to your point, like they need to be um, recouped in some way. And um, what was happening around that time was like T Brand Studio was really making a splash. And Condé Nast was starting 23 stories. So these branded content studios were popping up within publishing houses and they were creating um, content on behalf of, um, of brands. And the publisher that was at Giant Magazine when I interned back in the day was um, leading a team of strategists at Condé Nast um, the, in the, in the branded content studio and he recruited me. Um, and so I got to come on board, um, and lead strategy for tech business finance clients, and then expanded into travel, um, spirits and did a little bit of pharma. Um, and that was so like, it was, 
it was a very special moment in time um, for me professionally um, because it solidified my skill set in being able to sit between a sales person and a creative person and speak both languages mm-hmm. in order for us to do what's best on behalf of the client. It also gave me an opportunity to um, kind of nerd out and um, on like consumer behavior. So what was exciting about being at Condé Nast at this kind of like rogue little like innovative shop that people didn't know a a lot about. Um, I got to, you know, be in this, be in this entrepreneurial space, but have access to big company resources. Mm -hmm. Um, And so being the like, you know, in design thinking and in, in human centered design and as a design strategist, like so much of your um, skill set is around research um, and understanding consumer behavior. And so I was like, let me get access to the research team. I want to understand, like, you know, what are our readers reading? What are they engaging with? Um, what brands are they buying? Um, what are their behaviors? What's their, um, uh, like, give me their psychological, um, like, profiles. And then, you know, with that raw data, then I can also tap into you know, the cultural insights from a Vogue or a GQ or a Wired or a Bon Appetit, layer those on top of one another and craft some really interesting insight that can then inform our creative team on campaign ideas. Um, And I had a lot of fun um, doing that. And also um, my, a lot of my, approach and background was quite unique for the space. So you're in this really exciting opportunity um, that does feel entrepreneurial to use your words, even though you are an employee in effect. Um, But let's talk about acts of light. Like how did you go from that, which feels like a sweet spot on many different levels to say, I want to create this company and consult on my own. Um, I got to a point in the company where I realized that um, if I stayed, I would not fully accomplish what I was meant to accomplish. Mm. And that is because of, um, you know, some unfortunate things that happened while I was there. Um, And I did some work that I'm extraordinarily proud of that still lives on in the, um, that still lives on at the company. Um, but I just, I got burned out. Mm -hmm. I got burned out. Um, and I had always been in to come back to the entrepreneurial thing. I'd always been entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. Um, wherever I went, I always started something dating back to, um, to high school. Like I was, you know, I was always starting something, um, starting clubs, um, starting like many organizations, like I was always doing something. And, and, um, so when I got to this point at, after being at Condé Nast for three years and, um, realizing that I was kind of 
hitting a, a ceiling. Um, and there was a lot of shift that was happening on the business side too, that was, you know, just causing a lot of um, uncertainty for many people. It wasn't just me. Um, uh, but once I started to feel that, I I said, you know what, let me let me see what's out there. Um, and before I left, though, I want to be clear about this. Before I left, um, I secured a client mm. uh, and had a client contract, um, like a three-month client contract and some savings. Um, so I felt secure in taking the leap. Um, and the client that I signed on um, was from a former re- relationship that I had cultivated while in graduate school. And I knew that they needed my help. And I pitched my services to them and um, told them my plans. It's like, I want to leave my job. And um, if you give me a three-month contract, like not only will I help take your business to the next level, but... Um, you know, I'll, I'll also be able to kind of launch, you know, my own consulting practice. And he gave me the contract and that three month, um, brand strategy engagement turned into, um, a six month, um, brand strategy and like programming development, um, contract that then turned into a nine month contract, um, where we, um, developed some content for, um, for the company. And, that was that took me into um that 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 engagement lasted until the end of 2019 and then i was able to um partner with a friend of mine who um runs a um like a community engagement firm um and we signed on the highline to do a project um and then um you know, I started to develop some confidence around this entrepreneur thing. <laughs> um, and then the pandemic hit um, a couple months later and we transitioned um, that um, engagement online and um, it ended after about a month, which was the scheduled time that it was meant to end, um, pandemic or not. Um, and then I found myself um, in the middle of the pandemic navigating this new identity as an entrepreneur. Um, which was very, very challenging. Um, So where were you mentally and emotionally in that space? Because we all know building a business and building a funnel, a business development funnel is work even in normal times. Right, right. Right. And you you had this such a strong start with a three month opportunity really being extended then having this opportunity to partner uh, and now having this, I mean, this word has been so, overused in the last couple of years, but this unprecedented season that we're now living in while also trying to build a business. Mm-hmm. So where were you, you know, and especially as someone who has been high achieving your entire life. Yeah. And now this is new territory in more than one way. Yeah. Tell me where you were there. Who, Felicia. <laughs> I, I thank the universe God for um for showing me that I needed to develop a um a meditation practice prior to the pandemic. I'd gone through a pretty challenging breakup um November of 2019 um and went home to Portland and started to just like reframe and restructure. Um I broke down first um, and then started to reframe and restructure um, 
myself from the inside out and and developed a, a deep meditation practice. And I've been practicing yoga for years, um, but I didn't have, it was more of a physical thing as opposed to like a deeply spiritual thing. And so, yeah, I, I started this meditation practice daily from like late December, um, 2019. And so was doing it every single day. When the pandemic hit, I was like, ooh, I have to double down on this because the world around us is going nuts. I live alone. I have to take care of myself. I caught COVID. Mm. Like, so I needed to make sure that I had all of the internal resources to ensure that I could like function externally. Um, it was hard. It was really hard. I also had been in therapy for, I started going to therapy in 2016, um, and was consistently going to therapy for three years, um, and told my therapist at the end of 2019, no, at the beginning of 2020, like January, February, I was like, you know what? I think that I'm ready to take a break. <laughs> oh, you thought as they say. <laughs> I was like, I'm ready to take a break. I think that we've done so much incredible work together. Like, I've got so many tools and resources. I want to like be self-dependent. Like, I want to, you know, practice this stuff on my own. And I wanted to um explore some other types of therapy and do some more like body-based work. And so we broke up. And then the pandemic hit and I was like, wait a second, <laughs> do I need to call him back? <laughs> right. <laughs> but I'd made that promise to myself that I was going to learn how to take care of myself. Um, and so that's what I did. I like, I doubled down on all my self-care practices, doubled down on them, um, woke up at the same time every single day, um, uh, was really regimented about when I took in the news. So I would wake up at seven. I would go to, I would, you know, do my personal care, go into, um, put water on the stove, um, make tea and then come to my yoga mat. And I would do some stretching. I would do a little bit of yoga. I would meditate. I would do a little bit of reading, like some writing by nine o'clock. I would give myself an hour to listen to the news. Mm -hmm. And then I was at work from 10 until four, five or so. Then I would shut work down. Um, I would give myself an hour to listen to the news. And then that was it. And then if I needed to get back into work, I needed to, um, to um, uh, clean up some things, jump, you know, mm -hmm continue cultivating, um, some leads, um, whatever it was that I needed to do, I'd give myself a couple hours at the end of the night and then I'd be in bed and I would do the same thing over and over again. And that's what, that's what saved me during the pandemic. So you, which is impressive, you know, by the way, just this, the solitude coming off, let's back up, coming off a breakup <laughs> and then moving into the solitude of the pandemic, particularly in those early days, that in and of itself, is just a lot. Yeah. Um, but also building this business and having the wherewithal to say, let me find this regimen and let me stick to it. 
because that, in my experience, that offers some form of normalcy and some yeah. form of security and groundedness while literally everything is on fire around us. 100%. But how are you able to continue to build the momentum with your business when everything was shifting? And then we had the economic impact of just the world being shut down as well. Um, going back to the relationships that I had, just cultivating, recultivating, reaching out to people, letting them know this is what I'm doing. Um, these are the services that I'm offering. And look, for from March to June, I didn't get any new business. Mm. I was just staying up on what was happening in the world so that I understood where the market was moving, potentially going to move, um, so that I could position myself when the market opened back up. I had, you know, very, very fortunate to have um, some really, really strong um, relationships that I've cultivated over the years. Um, there were some projects that were jumping off um, that I knew I could offer some support to. Um, and so I positioned myself to be there when they had budgets open up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of those projects, um, and to this day, they're like a dream client of mine, um, was a biannual magazine called Deem Journal. Um started by a former classmate of mine and now a dear friend um, from graduate school, um, Nugote, and his um, creative partner and best friend, um, Alice Grandois, um, and their investor um, and and, um, co-founder, Marquis Stilwell. And they, we had been having conversations prior to the pandemic. um, And they were ready to press go on um, developing a strategy around developing strategic partnerships and advertising relationships. And I had a very, you know, I, I, I understood design, understood the magazine publishing industry, understood how to develop strategic partnerships. And so I became kind of the perfect person to um, consult on that work for them. Um, and so that was one of my first kind of projects post, well, once the market opened back up um, in 2020. And then um, some other start, some other work started rolling in, but not in necessarily the way that I thought that it would. Like I started to kind of pub, um, plug into other agencies and take on strategy projects through bigger established agencies. Um, I was contacted by a former coworker at Condé Nast who was um, looking to build a product, but wanted, didn't really understand. Um, uh, she, she, she needed some help with market research. She needed some help with understanding her customer. She needed help with um, developing a business model. Um, and so she came to me and was like, you know, I know that there, I know the power of design thinking and human centered design. Like, would you be willing to take this project on and support me? Um, and you know, it was not the most lucrative project, but it was, um, it was a, it was a way for me to continue like working and staying sharp. And 
So just, it was, I mean, it was sheer grit, Mm. like sheer grit and, and like belief that I was going to be okay. That being said, 2021 hit and we were still in it. And I was, I don't, like, I don't, I don't know if I can do it. I, I was like, I don't know that if I can do it. I got back into therapy and I, and I got back into therapy with clarity on what I needed support in, um, with. And so that year off in doing some self-study was really, really beneficial for me to then go back into therapy with some clarity about what I need now in this phase of my life and this phase of um, of life that we're all collectively living in. And then also I needed some help with like <clears throat> developing, like keeping up the confidence around the business too. Because like I said, to your point, like I had been very high achieving for a long period of time and had developed this identity, you know, around my professional life. And that was that change. And I'm inside by myself, you know? <laughs> Um, and so it was really challenging. It it was very hard, um, to, to be very honest with you. It was like, should I be doing this? Like, am I a strong entrepreneur? Like the, 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 the ways that I would, like I said before, like I'm a very, I'm a bit of an introvert, but I am really like social. And I like to be in environments with other people. I learn through conversation. And to remove that from the equation at a moment in time where I was trying to shift into a new like stage was mm-hmm. really it was really hard. So, but we're bouncing back. Things are, things are looking good. Yeah, I wanted to ask if you had one moment that was a tipping point where you thought, not only can I do this, but this is sustainable and this is where I want to be, that I'm in it with both feet planted and Mm -hmm. I'm not going back. Or was that an evolution that may even continue, you know, while we're having this conversation? So I, there was a, I think it's a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. There was a bit of a tipping point. um, And I I think I'm still evolving. So I did go in-house somewhere. Um, at the end of last year, mm, around August, um, September of last year. Um, and it was because I, I was getting work, I was getting projects, but I was, it was, I was like, this isn't as lucrative as I would like for it to be. And I, I miss team. That was mm. the other thing. I was like, I miss team. And I'm just, I'm a little bit burned out. And this opportunity came to me and it felt perfect it felt like the job that was designed for me. Um, and it felt like the conditions that I would go back into. It was a startup. It was, it was a startup. It was, the mission was on in service of black people in the diaspora. Like it just all, it was a brand marketing role. Like, so I don't know if you're familiar with the, with Ikigai, the, um, Mm -hmm. Um, philosophy, but it felt like that it was, it was me. It was like the thing that was needed in the world, my unique skill set. I could get paid for it. And it was a passion. It was just everything. Um, and then I got in there and I realized I can't do this actually. I was like, no, I can't do this. Um, 
what I couldn't see from the outside and I now see on the inside is showing me that I need to go and plant two feet on the ground on my own business. Mm. And, um, and the benefit of having done so much self-work and having like worked in toxic environments in the past made it so that I could like spot the signs super quickly and get out. And, um, and so I did. And then took a little bit of a break and, and, you know, the universe then like brought a client in, like somebody had, who I'd started cultivating a relationship with earlier on in the year, suddenly came back and wanted to bring me on board. And it was like, okay, this is confirmation. Mm -hmm. So signed on a client shortly after leaving the, the, the job, um, and just started to like, you know, go back to my, my practice, not my practices, but my systems, um, that I developed for the business. And, um, cleaning some things up and, um, letting people know that I was available. And then I went to Africa, um, which was a very important trip for me, um, personally, but then also professionally, because I knew that I wanted to, um, you know, part of the excitement of having taken on that role, it was, the, was that it was going to, um, allow for me to start working on the continent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't want to lose that, right? Like that was still important to me, even though the job was gone. And so it was like, okay, well, how can I cultivate a, a book of business and some clientele on the continent for my practice? Um, and so going to um, to Ghana um, in December was an opportunity to start like sowing some seeds professionally. Um, and then it was also super important for me personally, because I'd never been to the continent it was the closest that I'd ever been to, you know, where my parents are from. Um, and so from an identity standpoint, which, you know, is a, you know, the identity as an entrepreneur is one thing identity as, you know, Isotas, you know, child of immigrants and, you know, first American born is another thing. And so to go and operate for 10 days within the context of where my ancestors are from, it was so self-affirming. Um, and it, it, it was the confidence that I needed, like the confidence boost that I needed to come back to the States and like plant two feet into my own vision. So, yeah. So going back to the comment you made of having this realization that this is not as lucrative as I thought mm-hmm. it was going to be now that you've had this experience of going in house, realizing it's, it wasn't the right thing coming back out, going to the continent, planting these two feet on the ground, is your your vision revitalized in a way now where you feel like, no, this can be very lucrative oh, yeah. um, so long as I'm invested in the way that I need to, to be and effectively utilizing the systems that I've created? 100%. 100%. There is, there's no shortage of money mm-hmm. out here. Um, having the right systems in place, partnering with people who can help you to amplify and go after new opportunities and solve a myriad of problems, um, setting your financial goals in a way that, um, set, setting very clear financial goals, um, studying other business models, um, and seeing what works for you. Like there's just, 
I think that the pandemic in some ways put me into a mindset of scarcity. Mm. And there is no scarcity. <laughs> there isn't, there's, a, there's, there's, there's enough for everyone. Um, uh, but, but you have to focus. Um, and that's what I, that's where I'm at right now. It's like, I'm focused, I'm clear. I have um, a, a, a Spelman sister of mine who um, I've done some work with over the, during the pandemic. Um, she brought me in on some projects and we work extraordinarily well together. And we're like, hmm, we need to go into the market as a united front. Mm. Um, and with some very, with a very clear, um, with a very clear value proposition. Um, and with that kind of posture and clear financial goals, um, there's, there, there's no lack, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's no lack. So, so yeah, I'm in a different place now, um, than I was then. So shifting gears a bit. And I asked this question fully acknowledging that we've talked about this two-year Valley experience mm-hmm. that many of us have had in one way or another, but describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Yeah. You mentioned this question earlier and I was like, Ooh, what am I going to pick? <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, to your point, the, throughout the pandemic was, um, it was almost every day. Um, but the, I had one experience. Um, while working in corporate. Um, yeah, I had one experience while I was working in corporate. I was um, developing an initiative on behalf of the company and had a meeting with my corporate sponsor, um, let's say at three o'clock. And I had been preparing for it quite diligently for the for like a week. Um and was really, really looking forward to presenting my ideas. And like, you know, this woman was super busy. So getting on her calendar was, was, was really tough. Um, and so I was ultra prepared that day. So let's say the meeting was at three o'clock at like two o'clock. I had a group meeting with, um, or department meeting, um, with, um, with my peers and the head of the department, the head of our department. And, um, I was undermined in that meeting in a way that I had never really been undermined, um, honestly, in my career. I was very, very taken aback. My my success on a project was attributed to someone else. Mm. Um, and everybody in the room knew that that was Isis's work, <laughs> um, but couldn't say it in the moment. And I felt my blood internally just boil and I had to leave the room. Um, so I left like, in the middle of the meeting and I held it together until I got into the elevator and I broke down mm-hmm. and yeah, I can count on my like one hand, two fingers, maybe the number of times that I've cried at work, but I cried, I broke down and um, went into the bathroom, like took the elevator down to some random floor just to like get out of the, <laughs> just to get away. Um, went to the bathroom, had to pull myself together so that I could make it to that three o'clock meeting. Mm-hmm. As if nothing happened. And it's like, 
I just went into autopilot. Like I blacked out. Like I don't even remember the meeting, but thank God for the preparation that week of preparation, because it allowed for me to just go into autopilot and get what need, you know, get what needed to be done, um, accomplish our objectives. And then after that 30 minutes that we spent together, then I could just go home. Mm -hmm. Um, and I will never forget that day because it was just, yeah, to your point about having to be extraordinary, um, on, and maybe it's not an ordinary day because it was, you know, it was, a, it was, a, um, it wasn't the norm, um, but it was the contrast um, demonstrated a few things to me. One that um, I, I can be extraordinary in, in some like kind of volatile, um, you know, unhealthy um, situations. And um, so many of us have to be. Um, so I can, the question then became like, is that what I want? Right. Well, you know, I'll, I'll say this because you've mentioned at a couple of points in your life, having this moment of, you know, I broke down. And one of the things that I think the last couple of years have, have taught me is I've been in so many difficult moments where I'm having this internal tape running where it's like, don't break, don't break, don't break. Mm-hmm. And I think after such a difficult season, uh, both collectively and individually that, that has been experienced, I allow myself mm. to just open up and whatever emotions need to come out, come up and out, um, they do. And I, I find that while it might not be easy, right, it may not feel well in the moment, it's so necessary. Mm-hmm. Do you feel on this journey of growing up and being taught to have so much poise and structure and goals that you've embraced the emotional piece more in a way. Like I I know I have, I'm just wondering if, if that's been other people's experience, particularly strong, high achieving black women. I am with you. Absolutely. Um, I have, it's like, I've allowed myself to be human like Mm -hmm. everybody else, Yes, (laughs) you know, like, and I, and I know I'm actually a pretty sensitive person. I'm mm-hmm. very, very, I'm very much an empath. Um, and those things have actually been the, the, the you know, my sensitivity, um, my um, empathic, empathic ways have been the things that people like when I was younger used to make fun of me about. And so I've developed some defenses up against it, but like, that's actually what makes me like a good marketer. That's mm-hmm me a good communicator. That's what makes me a good friend. Um, and so I have like, especially in this season, like just allowed myself to feel all the feels and use it as information. Mm. You know, if like, if tears come to my eyes, I was going to cry a couple of times when we've been talking, but I didn't. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> if I on this show, trust me, we welcome it. <laughs> I have held that together. Um, but um, but I feel it and I and it's information for me that like, ooh, Delisha just touched on something that like I will probably go <laughs> thinking about. Um, it's information and I um and I want to learn about myself, you know, I want to be the best version of myself. I also want to like invite 
that in for other people, you know, that I'm in relationship with that, like, it's okay if you got to cry, it's, it's okay to like, let it go. And then let's talk about like what that brought up, you Mm -hmm. know, let's have a conversation about it or let's not, you know, whatever it is that you need. Um, let's just acknowledge it. I don't know if you're familiar with, um, the feelings wheel. No. Okay. I'm going to send it to you. So, you know, I'm in the communications business. You're in the communications business. Having language helps, right? If you're able to identify like, okay, I have this feeling, but like, I don't know what it is. Like it, it becomes confusing, but when you can place language to it, it becomes empowering. So there's this and I love a framework as a strategist. Um, so there's a, it, it's called the feelings wheel. And um, it's essentially just a wheel of words that, um, to describe different emotions. So you can say that you're mad. You could say that you're sad. You could say you're happy. You can say that you're, you know, but, or you can say that you're elated. You could say that you're inspired. You can say mm-hmm. that you're, you know, and that's a inspired, elated, Um, are like roots of come from happiness, anger, infuriated, disappointed, um, uh, dejected, whatever it is like, and being able to like name what it is that you're feeling can then allow for you to have some more compassion for yourself. And then also to advocate for what you need from Mm -hmm people who love and care about you. Um, So the tears don't just become like tears. They become information that you can then apply language to so that you can be a better communicator um, and have some more compassion. That's good. Now, as we move into this next space, of course, the world is still on fire, right? Acknowledging that. But here we're learning how to function in the midst of a pandemic that is not over, even though it's not dominating the news anymore. However, we're getting back to real life in a lot of ways. Yeah. In the face of that, what are you most optimistic about for the rest of this year? Excuse me. Um, I, I'm more optimistic about, um, what, what am I really optimistic about? Travel. Mm-hmm. I'm really optimistic about travel. I'm really optimistic about um, reconnecting to some folks um, in person, um, family, and some friends. Um, I'm also really optimistic about, as it pertains to both my personal life and my business, taking advantage of this nomadic life that we get to yes. live, <laughs> right? And it's like, okay, so what does that look like for my my work. Um, and I feel like I have, you know, roots in New York. I've developed my professional life here over the last 12 years. And because I'm moving into a new phase, so much of my relationships and many of my contacts, they're here. And so it makes sense to like, at least for a period of time, New York is very hard and like very impractical, but like there's some, (laughs) there's some benefits to like, you know, continuing to root here a bit. Um, but then you know, my father is aging and is in Portland. And so much of who I 
know myself to be and so much of what inspires me is rooted in Portland. And so I'm like, okay, well, how might I be able to incorporate more Portland time into my life? Mm. And so I'm really excited to like explore that. And I started to do some exploration around that during the pandemic, started to um, deepen my network there and get to learn, um, get to get to know some of the um, folks in the creative space in, in Portland and just kind of repatriate myself in a way. Um, and then I'm starting to develop some relationships and client relationships and personal relationships in on the continent. Mm. So I'm like, ooh, there's kind of this triangular effect, this opportunity to develop home in these three places that are really important to me personally and professionally. And I'm really excited to um, to to sow those seeds and to um, to to make a to make a life in a way that I never could have really imagined before. And that wasn't really that possible. Listen, I'm all about the working from anywhere Mm -hmm. um, and developing uh, processes and and regimens and systems in life, both personally and professionally, that can be replicated no matter where I am in the world. So that is probably the (laughs) thing to come out of the last couple of years and that that is embraced. So long as you have a computer, like, and a passport, anything is is possible. possible. (laughs) 100%. Yeah, it's liberating. Well, listen, we talked about how this this was a long time coming and it it took us a while to get here. But as I I told you before, you know, we pressed record, the timing is always right when it happens. And I'm, I'm so happy we've had this conversation where you are now. And I, I honor the internal work that you've done. It's it's so, so obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not easy work, but it's it's so evident when someone is reaping the benefits mm-hmm. of spending the time doing the hard work on the inside. And uh, so I celebrate you. Mm-hmm. I am excited for where the brand is going. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm excited that we've connected Me for too. sure. And yes. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Same here. Same here. Thank you so much for, for taking me on that, that journey. I didn't know where we were going to go, but <laughs> I, I, I really, I really appreciate the conversation again, like kudos to you for what you've been doing, what you've been building. Um, you're a gift to so many of us. Um, so I honor you as well. And maybe we'll do it again one of these days. Absolutely. <laughs> and thank you so much. And tell the people where they can find you online. You can find me on Instagram at Isata Elizabeth. Um, my website, <clears throat> my Acts of Life website is is in development, but isataelizabeth.com um, is my personal website. Isata Elizabeth on Twitter, like I'm very consistent. Um, so you can find me on those platforms and um, yeah, looking forward to, to engaging. To our listeners, Listen, I, I know both male and female, we have a lot of folks who can resonate with this conversation and resonate with the journey. If you have enjoyed it, get in the comments and tell us, like, share, subscribe. If you are looking to connect uh, uh, with Isita, given the work that she does and given her journey, please reach out to her. We are all about building the network here and creating opportunities for each other. So make that happen. And just always remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. 
Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.